Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And today, we're Dangerously Likely to talk about It's a Sin. Let's go above the fold with today's headlines. So per the New York Times, uh, their story, Dozens Are Gunned Down in a Day of Shame for Myanmar. So last Saturday, the day before a military celebration in Myanmar, protesters of the military coup came out in droves and were met with brutal violence and force. The military opened fire on the protesters, and over 100 were estimated to be killed in one of the bloodiest days since the military coup, including children. For our listeners who have not been following this story, on February 1st, 2021, Myanmar's military overthrew the government after rejecting the results of the democratic election that took place last November. Since then, the Myanmar people have protested nationwide against the coup. To Torrance and Terrell, I wanted to get your reactions to not only this horrific event in Myanmar, but also your reactions to the military coup. So far, the U.S. has condemned all of it, including this recent event, and placed sanctions on military leaders and military companies that own a big segment of the economy there. Just this week, we also learned that the U.S. has suspended all trade with Myanmar following this terrible event. Given that none of us are foreign policy experts, <laughs> how do you both feel about the actions the U.S. have taken thus far? Terrell, we'll start with you. Speak for yourself on the foreign policy expert piece. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, America actually using its authority to condemn something that's wrong without overstepping and making it its problem great right um i i appreciate and am thankful that the government's in a space where it can step forward and truly participate in a global dialogue around democracy and around the importance of the state recognizing and supporting its people however um it's really hard to let go of the holier than thou when that very country was just on the precipice of falling into something similar. Um, So I think while I appreciate and I'm thankful that we can finally stand at the podium and speak with great triumph, I can't help but look and see that the podium is a little tainted. Torrance? I think... For me, I'll echo and say that I'm happy that we are taking action that sends a clear message but is not getting militarily involved um, because I think that that's something we struggle with as Americans. It's kind of like what like we, we've went to war in way too many places um, yeah. in the name of democracy. And that, that, is a, that is a deeply held belief that I have. But I also believe as somewhat as a beacon of democracy, we do – we do hold some responsibility in, in trying to push democracy across the world and then not allowing it to drown sort of in this, in, in this instance um, in Myanmar. Um, mm-hmm. I just think that I, I think it can't go without being said that this is heartbreaking what's happening um, in Myanmar and that I think it's hard for Americans sometimes to really imagine what that would be like um, and how it's, incredibly terrifying that would be and also how disheartening it would be as a country that was just trying to find its stride as a democracy um but i do think that uh, just in, in a matter of foreign policy i think that this was the best action we could have taken i'm really happy we're not even discussing any military action um but i would like to see uh if there is anything else that we can do that's not military action um if we do not see any uh changes out of myanmar and with this coup being fully successful up to this point i'm not sure what the future of this sort of uh, diplomacy with that country looks like. Yeah, I think I think for me is I, I'm I share both of your thoughts um, that that I'm happy with the fact that the U.S. is doing something that isn't like military involved as of now, anyways. Um, my only concern is in the past when we have sanctioned Myanmar, um, there has been some criticism. Because some people think that it hurts the actual population of the people in that country more than it actually hurts uh, the people that are in power that are mm-hmm. doing all of this. So I don't know um, if the, what the effect of these sanctions um, and the trade uh, uh, suspension will do mm-hmm. um, to everyone in the country. Uh, I hope it doesn't hurt the people 
as much as it hurts those that are committing these atrocities. Yeah, I agree. In a story published on Friday, the Associated Press reported that on Thursday, the Republican governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, signed a sweeping voting reform bill that drew sharp criticism from voting rights advocates, Democratic lawmakers, and a wave of protesters outside of the state house as the bill was being signed in a closed-door ceremony, only two hours after it passed the state legislature along party lines. Democrats and voting rights groups say the law will disproportionately disenfranchise voters of color. It is one of a wave of GOP-backed election bills introduced in states around the country after former President Donald Trump stoked false claims of fraud that led to his 2020 election defeat. President Joe Biden called such GOP efforts, quote, un-American and sick during a news conference Thursday, and a group of voter mobilization groups filed a lawsuit late Thursday in federal court in Atlanta challenging the new law. The Republican changes to voting law in Georgia follows record-breaking turnout that led to Democratic victories in the presidential contest and two U.S. Senate runoffs in the once reliably red state. After the November election last year, I knew, like so many of you, that significant reforms to our state elections were needed, said Kemp, who drew Trump's ire after certifying Biden's victory in Georgia. The Georgia law requires a photo ID in order to vote absentee by mail after more than 1.3 million Georgia voters use that option during the COVID-19 pandemic. It also cuts the time people have to request an absentee ballot and limits what where ballot drop boxes can be placed and when they can be accessed. One of the biggest changes gives the GOP-controlled legislature more control over election administration, which has raised alarms about potential greater partisan influence. The law replaces the elected Secretary of State as the chair of the State Elections Board with a new appointee of the legislature after Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger rebuffed Trump's attempts to overturn Georgia's election results. It also shows this board it also allows this board to remove and replace county election officials deemed to be underperforming. This law also reduces the time frame in which runoff elections are held, including the amount of early voting for runoffs, and it bars outside groups from handing out food or water to people in line to vote. A lawsuit filed late Thursday in the U.S. District Court in Atlanta by three groups, New Georgia Project, Black Voters Matter Fund, and RISE, challenged key provisions of the new law and said they violated the Voting Rights Act. There was no immediate response from Georgia officials. Terrell, Caleb, Georgia had the most audited election in the entire country in 2020, with three recounts and one being by hand. They also had some of the most restrictive voter laws in the country prior to this bill being passed. I want to ask, with this bill being passed, the lack of real clear strategy around H.R. 1 in the Senate and the numerous number of uh, voter suppression bills that are in other state legislatures, what do you guys think this says about the state of democracy? Um, with many voting rights advocates, even um, even the president himself calling this a Jim Crow 2.0. What are your thoughts about the state of democracy? I think it just really uh, reinforces the point that HR1 needs to be passed almost no matter what happens. I think I think this being labeled as a Jim Crow 2.0 is quite accurate. Um, and I just... This is not, obviously, Georgia is not the only place this is happening. This is happening all over the country. Um, but Georgia's kind of seems to be one of the first places that we're seeing it actually passed. And I mean, we know the Republican strategy here. They have outright told us that they will lose every election unless they do stuff like this. And all they have to do is redraw lines to win back the House. Um, it's just so disgusting. And I think that the state of our democracy, if we let these bills get passed without doing anything about it, aka passing HR1, I think the state of our democracy is, is it really a democracy anymore? It's not good. It's not good to let these, to let certain parties and legislators and people dictate how everyone should vote. This is America. Everyone should be able to vote and it should be easy. It shouldn't be difficult. And here we are making it hard for people who aren't white to vote. Isn't that just the story of the country? Um, yeah. I kind of alluded to this in your above the fold, Caleb. I, I can't help but look at the podium and see that it's tarnished, right? Um, this country hasn't fully processed what happened on January 6th. It, it hasn't owned up to the fact that multiple senators stood on the floor 
to contest an election just because they didn't like the result. That has implications and that makes it seem as though actions like this in Georgia, actions that are starting to arise in Michigan, Alaska, um, Montana, you name it, states are following suit. They have some validity that says in this country, you still have to take a literacy test. You still have to pay a a price to show up and decide who is going to represent you. And you can't ignore the fact that that plays into, again, our education system that for years we've been taught that the only reason people came over to this rock floating in a sea is because of persecution and they fought a war because they weren't being represented. And yet their first choice, their first action was not to represent people. So uh, I struggle to be upset because again, I feel that this is the story of America. We're watching it happen. I'm glad that there's a person in the white house who's willing to call it what it is and say that it's not appropriate, but I have yet to see a moment where America hasn't felt this was the right course of action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this actually connects to what my above the fold piece was because there was um, some kind of resolution that went through the house um, the other day. Um, and it was about condemning uh, uh, the military coup in my, in Myanmar. And there was four t- everyone voted for it except 14 Republicans. And I believe of course, that Matt Gates and um, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, were, were a couple of the 14 that, that voted against this resolution to condemn, condemn this military coup. And when you think about it, what happened in Myanmar is almost the same thing that could have happened here. Um, the, the democratic election uh, yielded um, results that were in, unfavorable to the military. So the military said, oh, this election, uh, it was bad. Um, there was there was fraud, all this stuff, basically the same rallying cry that Republicans have had about this election. And then they said, we're going to take it over and we're going to arrest all the all, all the opposition party, basically uh, leaders. And uh, we're, we'll take over and make sure we return to a democratic process. That is like the grievance of some of these Republicans. And that's what we are seeing here, too. They think these 14 Republicans voted against condemning that because They kind of wanted to see that here. It's almost the same situation. And now we have these kind of bills going through state legislators and it was just passed in Georgia. It's, I think it's easy to connect the dots here. It's disgusting. And we know what they want. Exactly. And I don't think that you can overstate this here, but we must provide the context that these bills that are existing in state state houses across the country exist because of a promulgated lie. These are all based on a lie that our election had vast fraud. And that was why the previous president did not win the election. And there has been no evidence supplied. There have been 60 plus cases in which they have all shown to have no proof, to have no merit to be thrown out by Republican and Democratic uh, judges alike. And, we have to remember that, like, like I said last week, I'm done having this conversation about voting rights. This is about this is a disagreement about who gets to vote and who doesn't get to vote. And I also don't want to keep having this conversation and comparing these Republican representatives who continue to vote um, to take votes that are, in my opinion, uh, disgusting. But they are hostile to democracy. These votes are they prove that, that they're hostile to democracy. Their rhetoric proves that they're hostile to democracy. And we have to continue to call things what they are if we're if we're going to if we're going to fully face them. I think that you're not wrong to to draw the comparisons between Myanmar and some of the actions being taken by elected officials here. Um, but it, it is concerning, and that's why I think we must keep this on the radar of listeners. Voting has to stay at the forefront of the conversation because, like we've said last week, we are not anything. We are not a democracy if voting rights do not exist across this country. And right now with our voter turnout and federal elections, by any percentage point, we are failing by any, by any measurement. So we must do better. Yes. Hopping on the entertainment wire, Lil Nas X has actually stolen the headlines, not just for music. 
Nike is suing Mischief, a small Brooklyn-based company, over its sale of 666 pairs of altered Nike Air Max 97s as Satan shoes in collaboration with the rapper Lil Nas X. To dive into it, Nike's really raising a fuss and highlighting that this is likely to cause confusion and dilution in its markets and also bring up association that Nike just isn't looking to entertain or wanting to have as it does relate to Satan following Little Nas's most recent um, album. Several media outlets reported that those shoes sold out in less than one minute at the cost of $1,018 per pair. Lil Nas hopped on Twitter um, to reciprocate and, and explain why he chose the um, pricing and why he had 666 shoes. Also to give a shout out to the recipient of the 666th pair. Without diving into all the legal pieces and why Nike has chosen to sue this company for trademark infringement, um, I do want to dive into it from a different piece, not just in the sense that um, Nike is concerned about the optics and the image that is coming from this marketing campaign, but into the implications that it might have moving forward, especially as we're seeing following COVID a rise in creators and a rise in small um, influencers making and taking shoes and coming up with intricate and unique designs that they're able to resell. I want to ask both of you, should we have concern as we're seeing this expansion from our creators, does a lawsuit of this level with this much media attention potentially cause some concern for smaller creators who are making those unique, thoughtful, artful pieces and trying to resell just to make a living? Caleb, I want to start with you. This is a that's a really interesting question, Terrell, and I don't really know much about this case um, or if there's more context that I'm missing or whatnot. But uh, on one hand, legally, Nike has every right to sue, especially like maybe they wouldn't have if this wasn't as big of a deal. But Lil Nas X is at the other end of this. So I don't know if I'm mad at Nike for suing here. It seems well within their rights and they rebranded a Nike shoe with a Nike logo and said, here it is for a thousand bucks and sell 666 pairs, which I really don't think that actually dents Nike's market, but Nike has the right to do that. Mm-hmm. To your question about if it affects creators that are trying to resell things with their creative touch on it. That's a tough question because I know what you mean by that, but I, f- I don't know. I feel like this is, and maybe it's not, but I feel like this might be a different, um kind of situation mm-hmm. because i mean if anyone wants to go look up what the shoe looks like it's it looks like a nike shoe but it's not sold by nike and it's the satan shoe so i could see why nike would be upset by that but it's it looks like you could find that shoe in a nike store for the most part um so i don't know if this affects creators um just because this is so so blatant to me whereas some of the products i've seen from creators aren't like that mm-hmm. um but I, again i could be wrong here i could be wrong here and i i'd actually appreciate um uh more perspective on this yeah i think that i'll just kind of talk about it in terms of like how this might affect creators and what my thoughts on that are is that a lot of different, like especially as like uh, the ability for individuals to create and like and make small businesses because there's so many like tools to to make individualized creations with existing with existent products. That mm-hmm. like this is a space in the law where I think it, we we haven't kind of gotten there yet. Just like with so many other places in the law, but <laughs> with 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 Nike being the, the the size of company that it is, with the with the brand recognition that they have, it feels like this is this is a David and Goliath thing, and like this they're a little bit too big of a company to be I, to be taking on a small company that is right in the hundreds of, of 
not thousands, but hundreds of the product that they're that they're referencing, and that mm-hmm. this has got to be like barely showing up on a spreadsheet of what it would be out of their out of their profits. But we can't over we can't overlook the fact that they did buy the shoes, right? So mm-hmm. so Nike does get some profit from this. I think that the the advertisement and the likeness with Nike is where the issue really falls. But like we have like Gildan, correct? Like we all know what Gildan t-shirts are, but those are sold to different companies all over the world to print whatever it is that they may be. They're then turned around and branded as that, sh- that company's product, right? I think that it would be really, this would be an opportunity for Nike to lead in the industry and create a conversation around how do we contract our product with these small companies to give them the opportunity to, but make very clear guidelines around likeness and association. Not, mm-hmm. I don't think they should take this opportunity to crush a small company out of Brooklyn. Um, I think they should use it as an opportunity to educate and maybe make some make some changes in the industry that are are needed and necessary now that we've come to a, a point where, or it's kind of come to a head rather. And specifically in the suit, they highlight decisions about what products to put the swoosh on belong to Nike, not to third parties like Mischief. Um. Nike requests that the court immediately and permanently stops mischief from fulfilling all orders for its unauthorized Satan shoes. And I, I think both of you highlight that so well of this does Torrent, I think you, you used a great analogy. This does feel like a David and Goliath moment of you have this bigger company that's stepping in and saying, we aren't supporting this. And, and Caleb, your, your point articulates it the best of had it been someone else would we be here also had the messaging been different would we be here you can't take out the fact that this is a shoe that is propagating and marketing satan and for a country that might feel that it doesn't have any religious belief as its overarching umbrella there that does make some people uneasy so there is some of that need of self-preservation or self-protection for Nike also of if people are associating this with us, what type of impact could that have? It's a Sin is the five-part limited series out of the UK penned and produced by UK's own king of LGBTQ plus television, Russell T. Davies, who is famous for creating the original Brit- British version of the LGBTQ hit show Queer as Folk in 1999, Cucumber and Banana, which were two series focused on LGBTQ plus people in Manchester in the mid-2010s, and most recently, his 2016 future dystopian limited series Years and Years on HBO, where he once again centered LGBTQ plus characters at the helm of his storytelling. A career to, at this point, has all but taken up the mantle of responsibility to educate the UK public on the lives and stories of LGBTQ plus people. It's a Sin was produced by UK's Red Production Company and aired on Channel 4, where it broke viewing records in the UK before being released in a joint distribution venture with HBO Max here in the United States. The show stars openly gay British pop star and frontman of the band Years and Years, Ali Alexander, as the show's leading man who acts as the steadfast gas pedal through a narrative that reminds the viewer of the unabashed joys of the queer community in 1980s London, depicting young LGBTQ plus people living their lives openly and freely for the first time, surrounded by fellow queer people loving and living life without the stigmas of society hanging around their neck. The show does a beautiful job of depicting the joy, happiness, and yes, the sex and nightlife of a community and people just finding their stride before the realities of a worldwide epidemic are placed firmly at their feet reinforcing the shouts of shame that plagued their life previously. In a nuanced and human approach, Davies crafts a narrative that forces the audience to see the humanity in these characters and this crisis, instead of the often over-politicized and fear-mongering narratives of HIV that we've been fed as a society. A narrative that often perpetuates the shame that is associated with the virus, and as Davies puts it in the show, that shame is one of the driving forces behind the AIDS epidemic. It's a Sin places the heart of the show in both the immense joy and deepest depths of despair that are often more universal than we allow ourselves to feel. In the final episode, one of the messages about the AIDS crisis and the tragedy of it all that I believe sums it up in a haunting manner is spoken from the mouth of the show's main character, Richie Tover, when he says, that's what people will forget, that it was all so much fun. Welcome to a new segment we are excited to have called The Culture Conversations. Fair warning, there's going to be some spoilers Um, But I'm so excited to start this conversation with y'all, especially because we all got to watch It's a Sin 
And we get to have another shameless plug for HBO Max. And before we get into that, let's start with a clip. You are lost. Oh my God, what's wrong with you? He says infectious diseases. What the hell is that supposed to mean? For God's sake, Richard. What, what is it? What's happened? What's, what's wrong? What are you doing here? We thought, surprise, we, we turned up and then your neighbour, that woman downstairs, she said you were here. Oh, she would. What, what's wrong? What is it? Look, it's really nice to see you, but I think we should all sit down and have a little chat. It's a bit complicated to explain. Well, evidently, it's so complicated, you chose not to tell us anything. Well, we now, said to him, we, all we said, I would what, like what was this? They said infectious sense. diseases. If that's not you tell us, too you, much you, to you ask. Me, what, 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 what does that, what, what that mean? Richard, what's wrong with you? I've got AIDS. I'm gay. I'm homosexual. I contracted HIV and I'm sorry, but now it's AIDS. In this clip that we just showed, uh, this depicts the moment in the show, it's in the fifth episode, where Richie Tover, the main character played by Ali Alexander, um, is lying in bed and has already been diagnosed with with HIV and has progressed to AIDS. Um, And his parents, his mother and father, are coming into the room, um, finding him there for the first time, not knowing that he has that he has AIDS, not knowing that he's gay, and not knowing why he's in this hospital. Um, and we, we wanted to show that because when we were doing research about the show, um, I'm a huge fan of Russell T. Davies. Uh, I've watched I've watched Cucumber. I've watched Banana. I watched Years and Years. I watched part of Queer as Folk before I moved to the American version when I found it. Um, but he's an excellent writer. And like, well, like I said in the opening, he really has sort of taken up the mantle of responsibility to educate the UK people um, through his storytelling. But he said that the that the catalyst for him writing this um, was that after living through the AIDS crisis, he remembers these haunting stories of families who, of parents who were showing up at AIDS wards across Britain and were finding out that their child was gay, had AIDS, and was dying all in one foul swoop. And that I thought that this scene um, really kind of shows the immense emotion uh, of that moment, how for those people in 1980s, obviously, um, our very Christian-based society that we lived in. And so there was a lot of oppression of the LGBTQ plus community. And so not only they're finding out their child is gay, but that they're very quickly going to be dying. Um, I just want to start this off with you guys. What do you think, what do you think of like the overall message of the show? And that might've been different for each of, each of us, but what do you feel um, you took away as the overall message? That's a great question. I, first of all, I love the show. Um, definitely got emotional at the end. Um, I actually talked to my, my mom who listens to this podcast about it. And my mom growing up in that period, uh, had friends, um, that was not unlike what this show depicted. Um, just the joy of it all. And I think that's what really struck me about this show is that it made you almost forget about the impending doom because of how joyous it was and how almost carefree it was and how it made you feel watching these characters just express their humanity and live life. The message I think the show, I think there's probably a lot of messages the show um, brings to the table, but what I really got from it was as someone who hasn't really watched a ton of shows or read up a ton about the HIV um, uh, epidemic, for me, this show was not only about showing what the culture was like and what HIV did, um, but it was it was it really gave me the message of how easy it is for people, even when lots of people are suffering and there's something going on. Um, it's easy for the mainstream society to kind of look past it and not care about these individuals. Yeah, I would, um, I would echo a lot of that. I think obviously also really enjoyed the show. I was the one who kind of pitched it to all of us to watch. Um, but I think it was hard for me not to recognize the distinction between um, what I know of 
that era and, and the epidemic happening in the U.S. and how it was spoken about in the U.K. It, it was very much an American disease. It hadn't come across here. And then it, when it did, it became a London disease. It's in the city. It's with those people and how and yes, I could do some more diving in to understand fully, but how it just, it had this connotation attached to it that didn't break until the late 90s into more recently where we finally started destigmatizing HIV and having better conversations around prevention and also understanding that it impacts everyone. It's not um, exclusive to a sexuality or, or a person. And I think using Ali's character did such a great job of driving that. Um, but I, I think for me, one of the biggest messages that also came out um, is the fact that you can, to some extent, choose a family. As we talk about joy, as we highlight the sense of life that the show carried the main characters, the group that you you get to follow throughout the entire show, right? They were a family, even when their real family was shunning them or not helping them through some of the things that they were processing. They were a family, so much so that um, the mother of one of the characters almost felt like she was adopted into the group, not so much that she came in and just automatically belonged. And for me that message mattered a lot from those individuals having to come out from those individuals having to find their space and and find where they're comfortable. Um, it was the joy, but it was also the ability to really say, these are my people. Right. So the, the show, the show actually to give people um, who have stuck around to listen, who might, who might not have seen the show and aren't going to watch that it, the show centers around uh, like four to five main characters who come from different parts of England and then all move to London. Um, and they're all various queer people who were not previously out or were not able to be out in their hometowns. And, and London was sort of this opportunity to finally be themselves. Um, and, and it follows them from like 1981 through the early, the early nineties of the AIDS crisis. And like Terrell, like you were pointing out, um, one of one of the aspects of the of the show is that we see this like slow trickle of information from the U.S. to London, and so you, from a twenty twenty one perspective, you're watching these characters make really very risky and unsound decisions. But it, it forced me as a gay man to think, what would I have believed? Right? Mm-hmm. Like they were they were telling them that this is gay cancer, and as an intelligent young twenty year old person. Ali's character, Richie, Richie Tover says, you can't catch cancer. It's not something you catch, right? So like, what would what would I have believed? Would I have thought that this was, when you're marketing a, an entire virus as a gay virus, right? That only gay people get it in, in a society that oppresses gay people. Mm-hmm. It would be, I, I struggle to know, like, would I trust my government or the messaging enough to want to believe what's being said? Or would I believe this to be a tool of oppression? Did you guys have any thoughts about that specifically, Yutra? Caleb, I'll let you start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually, I really thought that the show did a good job of depicting that because it kind of went through stages. Like, like if I was, if I was Richie in the show, who was kind of thinking that this was unreal, you can't catch cancer, right? Like none of this is real. It's just made up to scare us. Um, that's that's a good point you bring up, Torrance. I <laughs> I don't know what I would have believed either, but the show does a really good job of depicting um, um, Richie kind of going through this, uh, Ollie's character going through the stages of denial. And maybe it was because there was some fear there, especially, especially there's one scene that really, um, it really like, I, I just remember it out of the show more than the others. Uh, when he's sitting down with, um, he, want, he wanted to be an actor and he's sitting down with his agent and the woman across the table from him says, um, a lot of boys these days go home. Mm-hmm. And she said, don't be one of those boys that go home. 
And I felt like that was a subtle moment of the show, yet a really impactful one for how Richie's character uh, kind of dealt with dealt with the information that he was given at the time. Yeah, I don't. I think I want to tell myself that had I been there, I I would have been one of those printing out the pamphlets and trying to get the information out into the community, but. Again, I, I jump back to the above the fold. The podium ha- is tarnished. It. We Richie, are talking Thatcher era England. Yeah, so, yeah, and and again to the point that the U.S. they kind of controlled a lot of the narrative that was coming out of that moment because the epidemic had hit our country specifically so hard, and it it was being highlighted but not in a productive way. It was being used as this is sodomy. You shouldn't be having this repress that side of you and, 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 but I, again, I come to this point and I, I think of what Richie said, can you be surprised? Cause you have a country that infected its own people with syphilis just to understand how the disease worked and resulted in killing an entire ethnic minority group. In that moment, you, not the entire, the group, but a, a portion of it that was serving in the military and serving for the country, you, you still have issues in medicine to this day where African-American and BIPOC folk show up to the doctor and are treated differently because research articles came out and said that they have different pain tolerances or their body reacts differently to something. So in that time as a as a gay male whether it was for comfort or just for the sense of distrust to any governmental organization in that space i can understand where richie's coming from of it's really hard to buy that they wouldn't use this as an opportunity to force me to stay in the closet to make me feel more shame about myself mm-hmm. or to be experimenting to understand if they could i don't want to say pray the gay away but pray the gay away like it that piece specifically, it just has a lot more implications in the whole historical context. Right. It, it's sort of a, I, I don't want to use it like this because that's the wrong word. I, I, I don't mean it in a, in a positive way, but it was a almost a perfect storm of terrible, of terrible things, right? Because we have mm-hmm. a society who, the, the arrival of this virus is specifically impacting the gay community um, so disproportionately and, and first it reinforced all of society's shame. It mm-hmm. reinforced all of these arguments, are religious arguments of sodomy is a sin. This is this is your you've you've deserved this. You've earned this. This is this is this is your uh, punishment for your way of life for before your for your sinning. And it's like really, it's really unfortunate that one that kind of misinformation can have such a large impact, and that also that kind of messaging and kind of to draw to like today's is like misinformation can shape an entire health crisis and can affect an entire health crisis. And in the show, and I'll talk about it a little bit later, there's, there's a really poignant scene where one of the characters gets to the point of shame being one of the number one catalysts for, for, for perpetuating this disease because it's that shame that keeps people from getting tested. It's that shame that gets that keeps people from stopping to have sex. It's this, this shame that reinforces this idea that you have, that you deserve this disease and that you deserve to die. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to bring it back to a little bit of the creation of the show a bit. Um, Russell T. Davies said that all of these characters are people that he knew that are, are based on people that he knew. Um, and I, one of the really cool things that I, I thought was a highlight is that um, Jill Baxter, who is is like the almost like the heart of the show, that character played by Lydia West beautifully, um, is, is a real person that he knew um, growing up who was active in the uh, AIDS epidemic in London and helping people and pushing out information in the activism. And something that was really cool uh, that I wanted to share is that, so the... Of all of the characters, we, we see a lot of Jill Baxter's parents. She's a mixed race character. Her, her white mom and her black dad are, are kind of side characters in the show. And that what's really cool is that the actress who plays Jill's mother in the show is the real life Jill. Oh. 
she is and, and because we should say like a part of the plot is that most of the characters in the show are in show business are actors and mm-hmm. so uh jill nadler is her real name or now nadler excuse me is her real name and she was the actress playing her mother the character based on her uh which i thought was really cool um can i ask you guys what was a notable performance for you in the show <laughs> i i mean hers i was actually gonna highlight her character specifically because as i'm reflecting her character did a really subtle but amazing job of walking through the mindset of the country and the world as the epidemic continued. You start with the, I have fears. I don't want to believe this is real, but, but I, I still want to know more to it impacts you and you want to show up for your friend, but you are spending two and a half hours in the shower you're wrapping yourself up in all the plastic you can find because you don't know enough about this and you're afraid all the way to the point that, and I'm glad we did a spoiler alert before this, because I hope that if you're still listening and you're interested, this doesn't ruin it. But um, she's in the hospital with patients, patients she doesn't even know and sitting by their bedside because they're alone. So you, you see this amazing change over time that I would argue the world is becoming more onus of um, that just for me had such a holistic view of how things can change and how it, how people can grow and learn and not be stuck in their first character on episode two. Yeah, I think, I think, and I, I was, I talked to both of you a little bit before this and, uh, Lydia West, uh, her character of Jill is probably, for me, the most grounding character in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, because as as Terrell put it, she kind of follows the real-time reaction of the actual epidemic. And, right, like she's trying to, she, she doesn't want to uh, uh, believe what's going on, but she still wants to know more. Um, and she's probably the most realistic of it. Um, but she's the person that it grounded. She grounded me in the way that, as you were saying, she was beside the beds of those she didn't even know that had it. Um, she was the one that was taking care of everybody, but also keeping the secrets too. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the one with uh, a beautiful, a beautiful um, um, just speech almost at the end to Richie's mom after uh, the events of the show. And I, I liked Richie's character a lot because Richie's character was really the, I don't want to believe it. Of course they're doing this to us. Um, and then out of fear, walking away from the HIV test and, but knowing, but knowing, mm-hmm. um, but Jill, Jill was the character that grounded me um, in the, this is how society could move forward. Be more like Jill. <laughs> yeah i i actually the, the performance that i thought was so captivating was one that was super quiet and, and breathless um colin. the the character of colin played by callum mm-hmm. scott howells which was like in my opinion i think that that like lit, lit, that jill baxter her character was like the the, the driving force in, in the show of like of the of, of like the epidemic storyline but i think that like i misspoke earlier because i believe that colin was like the heart of the mm-hmm. show i oh, think yeah. that like his experience his innocence his like quiet quiet like depth that he brought to, to like every to every part of his experience in the sh- or every performance in the show was just was it was incredible i mean he's a character who we don't ever see, we see his innocence. We see him not know much about the the queer culture. We don't ever see him have sex on screen as a gay man. You you go all the way up to the point of, of him collapsing uh, without thinking that he ever had any sexual interaction and therefore was never at any risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't find out until much later after you find out he's sick, how the origins of him contracting the disease. And I thought that I was gutted. Uh, when, when he collapsed and I, and I was genuinely from the perspective of the, of the audience, like, why is he, why is he passing out? 
Why mm-hmm. is he fainting? Like, I was like, what's going on here? Like, he's not sick. He hasn't contracted the disease. There's nothing to suggest that. But he carried that so, so well. And he actually plays one of the most sick performances, right? So like, as an actor, like, he, he like, I really, like, that's like, like the kind of like meaty performance that I really get into. And he, as any of, out of all the actors, plays sick for like, I think the mm-hmm. longest period of time. Um, and his performance especially laying in the bed, especially handling like the inappropriateness of the one of the one moment when Richie comes in, like it was all just like handled so organically, like, and it felt so authentic. And I just thought that like him and his mother were such a quiet heart of the show. And I, I thought mm-hmm. it was beautiful. Callum Scott Howells is incredibly talented. Yeah. And I, I think too, Colin was such a great juxtaposition to Richie, right? Like Absolutely. you had these two very different personalities who went through similar experiences in a very different way and uh, everything you said towards the spot on the, when you finally learn Colin's backstory, that's when it hits you of, yeah, like these are the individuals that weren't getting talked about in the moment. These are the people who did everything right. And, and it still touched them. And actually after my whole rant about my favorite, I did want, I would feel remorse if I didn't also, give a shout out to Ash, um, the mm. character who played as Richie's yeah, yeah. boyfriend. <laughs> yeah. On again, off again. Yeah. On again, off again. His, hmm. his role never feels like it has a huge impact until I think the very last episode, that's when him as a character also kind of solidifies of, all the places and things that he played in and why he was important. And specifically going from episode one to episode five, um, the places where you see him are just those climactic scenes where you needed someone to just like make you feel good, I guess, make you feel comfortable or, or just be there and kind of give a laugh or a smile. And he, his character played that in my opinion. Um, But also most notably, he was the one who always grounded, in my opinion, Richie, even in moments where he was feeling the most shame, even in moments where he was feeling that he was doing everything wrong. It seemed like Ash was that character that could show up for him or be around him and bring Richie back to some sense of humanity, which I just appreciate. I did Absolutely. And I, I wanted to like make sure that we comment on something like the juxtapos- juxtaposition you drew between Richie and Colin and for people who haven't watched the show that Richie is, is the main character who we see have loads, as the British would say, uh, of sex on screen. You see his character like have a very active sex life. And like we mentioned, Colin's character, you don't ever see once, but as once you find out he has, um, he's dying from AIDS, he you show that he only had one sexual yeah. interaction. And so like it goes to like, send this message to the audience about this um, false stereotype about gay men in the eighties and the AIDS epidemic and why it was, and why it spread so quickly about that. Like all gay men are just uh, sex addicts and are Mm -hmm. having sex with everyone and anyone. And that that's the only people that it, that it affected. And that was why people were getting infected when it was, there was people like Colin's character uh, who, and, and Ray Russell T. Davies said, this is specifically someone he knows Colin's character. Um, And, that who had only had sex once. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up um, the actor, Nathaniel Hall, who plays character Donald Bassett um, is, it, it is a British actor who, who becomes famous from writing and starring in his own one person show called first time um, because he actually is an openly gay man who was diagnosed with HIV at age 16 um, from his first sexual experience. And so uh, I think that that's another thing that can't go unsaid is that Russell and the producers and the directors did a really good job of casting and making sure that LGBTQ persons were represented in the show, that people in the HIV community were represented in the show and that were telling their own stories. Um, and I think that that deserves a lot of respect. Um, I, I Before like we end up this segment, I think one of the things that was, that sat with me forever um, after the show was the final scene. And Lydia's character is, is speaking to Richie's mom and is, is talking about how shame is the reason that it's her fault because the shame that she placed on him, the shame that society has placed on them makes these men feel like they deserve this disease, makes them feel like this is the consequence for their actions, um, for loving. 
and that the shame that Richie had is what kept him from getting the answers from his test when he knew that he was probably positive. It's the shame that pushed him to continue to have sex unprotected with people and infecting other people who are going to die. It's that shame that if society had lifted some of its shame, maybe we could have handled this epidemic in a more um, healthy way. And that, and by shame, we mean no shame behind getting tested, no shame behind being diagnosed, no shame in using protection to keep yourself safe. Like the shame that we placed on people um, perpetuated this epidemic. I wanted to know like, what kind of lasting feeling you guys were left with after that monologue at the end. I mean, I'll be completely honest with all of you in the audience. I was uh, uh, in tears <laughs> when this was happening. And I actually thought, because, because when uh, the character of Jill goes to talk to Richie's mom. Richie's mom says that he he was gone mm-hmm. already. And I actually didn't believe her. I thought she was just I thought she was just she was lying on purpose to get him to go away. Hmm. I did not think he had actually gone yet, even though I knew it was inevitable. Mm-hmm. And like I don't know, when when it had the scene after that went of him actually actually passing away, I was just, that was a mess. I was a mess. And the whole scene from what, from what Jill talked about, um, I think that's one of the messages of the show that, that not only can society drive it, but the shame that comes from the, from the driving of a, a discriminatory society, the shame that comes from a discriminatory society. An oppressive um, society. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is what can drive a health epidemic like the, like HIV was. You have nothing to be ashamed about. I hundred percent ball my eyes out. I actually paused it. Um, right after the scene where they, they show him laying in the bed because I couldn't stop crying. Um, There's a lot. I I think for me, everything you both hit on spot on, but I also think for me, there was this sense of why haven't we moved past it yet? You know, we've come far, we are doing better. And yet, the notion of coming out is still one of the most traumatizing things for members of the LGBTQ community. It can, it can ruin a family and ruin relationships that individuals have had for years. You have people, a part of religious centers that feel they can never truly explore their identity. There's this immense amount of shame that comes in, um, And then as a bisexual male myself, you slowly open up and feel more comfortable having these conversations or or doing these things. But you, you also find in the queer community that a lot of homosexual men don't want to believe that bisexuality is a thing. So you then have the shame to decide which gender am I into today? And it, it, it has all of these pieces, right. To, um, to just like really leave you thinking of what's the best way to put this. I, a teacher I used to have in high school worded it the best, like don't be the piece of litter in someone's day. Like don't be the one bad thing that they have to deal with that can, can ruin it. And I think that monologue carried great weight of the mom to the end thought she was doing everything she could to protect her child and, and be there for her, her, her baby but from that very first episode where she assumes that they are dating and doesn't even explore or open up the option that they're just friends and all of these things to that pressure and that feeling that you have to present yourself in a certain way, it carries a lot. And um, yeah, for me, I think that that was the driver of we've come so far, but we still haven't gone far enough. I think that like, 
the thing that like like broke my heart more so than even just not even more so I guess but really broke my heart other than than Richie's dying at the end was that the shame persisted all the way till the end from the parents mm-hmm. right like they they come in they find that he's dying they take him back to the Isle of Wight out of London um, and they don't allow they don't tell Richie that his friends are calling they don't tell Richie that his friends have moved to the Isle of Wight for the last two weeks of his life trying to see him every day and she doesn't let him over and she lies to Richie about them calling and wanting to come over and see him and then he dies and his friends don't get to say bye because of this like continuous shame that this family had about bringing these queer people to their house or showing telling anyone that he had um HIV and like that was another thing that Russell T Davies touched on in these interviews is that like He's like, we're at this point. He's like, there was just so many people who died whose families never said anything. Mm-hmm. And there's all of these ghosts in our past and our history that don't have stories and don't, and their lives are not shared and their families, like the, their parents are now getting to that age of death. And so these stories are never being shared and these, this population of gay men are just disappearing into history. And so um, yeah. that, that, that broke my heart. And one thing that, yeah. And one thing that, I, I think really carries from what you just shared, Torrance, is throughout the show, there is an assumption that the catalyst and the person that was going to cause the issue in, in, in his life was his father. He comes off as an ag- aggressive man. He seems very stuck in his traditions. But that last scene, well, one of the last scenes, you see him crying next to his son and genuinely upset that he never allowed his son the opportunity to even mention it. Qu- questioning like what would have been different if I would have done been there differently versus his mother who shuts it all down. Won't tell the neighbors that he's even at home when they can clearly see him laying in his bed, makes up all these elaborate excuses across uh, a lot of platforms. And again, to the, the testament of the show, I appreciated the fact that it broke that gender norm that everyone assumes that it's the mother who's going to comfort the the child and try to understand and be there for them. And it's the dad who you instantly think is going to be the one to just say, you have to leave the house, blah, blah, blah. Um, I, I just really appreciate it and think about how both of them responded after my own bias presented itself. Absolutely. And I, I think that all in all, we can say that this this content is really important to continue the conversation around HIV, to continue the conversation around LGBTQ plus representation in entertainment and media and what stories get to be told and who gets to tell them. Um, I, I really appreciate the conversation. Uh, just a reminder to the listeners that you can stream It's a Sin on HBO Max now. Um, and thanks so much for having a culture conversation with us. Torrance, why don't you take us on a tangent to start? Yeah. Uh, my tangent is a little more of a, a PSA, um, but to start it off with a little bit of angst, I guess I'll say is that as a gay man, I grew up largely because of the narratives being told in the media, what I was t- taught in school, what I saw in television shows. Um, I grew up with a immense fear um, to, to pr- pretty much an irrational level of contracting a sexually transmitted disease, specifically HIV, and not because of, sh- well, don't let me lie, actually. Yes, definitely because of the shame that is associated with it. Not that I look at people with shame, but because of what society has taught me to be ashamed of. Um, and so as, as an adult male, I have been very consistent about getting, about getting tested, um, about educating myself myself on how certain sexually transmitted diseases are transmitted, what the risk factors are, how to have open conversations with partners about your testing status, about being honest with that, um, and trying to push my uh, straight friends who do not have a culture of getting tested very often when for, for who had much more active sex lives than I, um, trying to push the conversation with them to go get tested because the, the, the latest data um, that I do have is that a quarter of HIV diagnosis diagnosis in the latest data from the CDC are heterosexual people. Mm-hmm. And one of the driving factors is that there's still so much shame and stigma around HIV, especially among heterosexual people, especially heterosexual males who do not want to go and get tested um, because of the association with being, with being gay. Um, but 
I was happy to see that after It's a Sin um, premiered in the UK and a lot of the promotion from the actors and the creator, they have a testing week, a national testing week for HIV in England. Um, and after the show aired, that increased by three times from the previous year of testing. And so I think that as we, if we keep pushing these conversations um, and making them public and, and detaching some of the shame from it, that hopefully we can do that same push in America. So uh, my tangent today is, is if you haven't, please go get tested. Please be aware. Um, if you are having an active sex life, please look into PrEP. Um, just please be safe because we can do better for one another. What about you, Caleb? Take us on tangent. I definitely want to echo what Torrance said. It's important to get tested and everyone should do it, whether uh, wherever you are on the spectrum. Um, my tangent today is going to be pretty brief, but kind of fun, I hope, for all of you. I was kind of diving into um, space. I really like space. This isn't really a secret anymore. One of my favorite movies is Interstellar by Christopher Nolan. It's a space movie. Um, I don't like like cheesy space movies. I like like deep, meaningful ones. Um, but one of the things, I was scrolling through the headlines uh, earlier today, and one of the things I came across was um, the answering the enduring questions about Mars. It's a, from an Axios newsletter. And it basically talked about how the process of which NASA will have to go through in trying to understand the planet of Mars more and if there's life there or how certain rocks were formed or whatnot um, and how erosion may have worked um, on Mars. But really, uh, the rover that they currently have on Mars, it really just brings up uh, more questions. It actually makes the mystery more mysterious of what life is like or would have been on Mars because we know that um, uh, there was uh, water on Mars, but what we don't know is where it actually went. Originally, the thought was, oh, it just kind of burned up in space after the atmosphere. However, that went away, went away. Um, but now um, it's actually very possible that the water was just soaked up into the ground. And so that's just, it's just becoming more of a mystery. And then I went into a little like a, a rabbit hole of space things. And I came across this study about, about how your heart is like one of the most adaptable organs in your body and how it adapts in space. When you're in gravity, your heart, like more, like when you have a deeper gravitational pull, your heart will actually grow to work more. But in space, you don't have a gravitational pull. So your heart shrinks, which sounds scary, but we don't actually know yet if there's any like bad um, health effects from that. But it doesn't matter. You could be exercising. And so they tested it on Scott Kelly, an astronaut, mm -hmm. and um, his heart shrunk, even though he was exercising every day, uh, six days of the week, actually, when he was in space for a year. And he's fine, but his heart shrunk. And then they also noted that the, there was a guy, I don't remember his name, but there was a guy who swam. Uh, across the Atlantic Ocean, I believe. And it took like six months to do. Um, and his heart shrunk too, because water offsets gravitational pull, um, even though he was swimming six hours a day, which is actually insane. Um, and I don't know if it was across the Atlantic or the Pacific. It was one of the oceans. But I'm going to leave it on that. Kind of wild <laughs> stuff. Terrell. Oh, that was definitely a tangent. <laughs> and you're telling me I should not leave gravity because I already don't have a heart, so there's not much that can shrink. Get it. Yes. Take <laughs> us on a tangent. Is it bad for once I don't have one? Um, oh, that's okay. Not bad. I guess that's our episode. <laughs> I The world is just a cluster. I, there's no one thing I can give a tangent on. But... Um, I'll just leave us with this. Well, with two things, one echoing everything Torrent shared in PSA, because it is important to get tested. Also, it's important to have a comfortability to share it. The mental toll on getting tested is also egregious and stressful because for whatever reason, our society has decided that that makes you unpure and, um, by no means should any person who is doing their due diligence to be healthy and to be safe feel like they need to cripple themselves mentally if a result comes back positive or if they're just going to get tested and it comes back negative. 
um, it's yeah. Um, but on a lighter note, I think the only thing I can think of for a tangent is just the fact that the world was focused on a canal that more than 92% of Americans probably never knew existed until this week. And all it was, was a bunch of memes talking about how to rotate a boat 90 degrees. So that was a fun time. (laughs) Well, at least the people were educated and can identify the Suez Canal. It's only one of the main waterways for transport across the world. So, you know, education. Wait, where is that again? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I thought that was in like, is that like the Mississippi River? Like the little part right at the bottom of Louisiana? Precisely because we have a very American focused mind. Yeah. No. Where else would we be sending things? If I'm ordering stuff from Amazon, it's not coming from out of this country. What? Yeah. See, thank you, Torrance. I needed that. (laughs) And the tangent happened. (laughs) Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. I'm Caleb. I'm Terrell. And I'm Torrance. And we're Dangerously Likely to see you next week.